Well, good morning. My name is Nick Swan, the associate pastor here at Grace. Uh, we're continuing our series on the book of Luke this morning from Luke 3, verses 1 to 22. And the title of our message this morning is Jesus Unexpected, Prepare the Way for the King. Before we begin, let me pray for us. Father, I pray that as we encounter your son through the book of Luke, that your spirit would help us to see him in fresh ways, that we would be comforted by him, that we would be convicted by him, that we would be amazed by him. Father, may we not take Jesus for granted, but as we draw near to him, may we be amazed and surprised, maybe even for the first time, with just how wonderful he truly is. Father, we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. In this morning's message, we are going to encounter John the Baptist. John was one of the brightest stars in the biblical firmament, and it was his job to prepare the way for Jesus, the Messiah. Jesus himself says of John the Baptist, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet John's light It was merely a reflection of the greater light, the light of Christ. Just as the moon shines brightly in the evening time, it immediately begins to fade when the light of the sun rises in the morning. John was a bright light, but he paled in comparison to the dawning of the light of the Son of God. And John, once that bright light arrived on the scene, once Christ came, he faded from the scene. In John's ministry, it calls us to prepare ourselves for a fresh encounter with Jesus. John's job was, the light is coming, prepare yourselves. And so his ministry calls us to prepare ourselves. And John's life also models for us a posture of humility. That as great as he was, he knew that Christ was the Son of God, and in humility he prepared the way and then faded from the scene as he too, with us, worshipped the Son of God. Main point for this morning is this. God calls us to humble ourselves in preparation for a fresh encounter with Jesus. God calls us to humble ourselves in preparation for a fresh encounter with Jesus. Our first point this morning is this. John's role. John's role. So last week Marshall gave background on the book of Luke. And Luke is the author of this gospel. In particular, Luke was a Gentile physician who set out in his gospel to give a carefully researched and historically accurate account of Jesus' life and work. Yet again, we see Luke's detailed approach in these opening verses. Beth had the tough task of reading all these names and dates and people and regions. And what Luke is doing here is he's trying to set John's ministry in an historical context. Here's what was going on. Here's the date or approximate date of when this was happening. And this is the context into which John stepped. Now, the circumstances of John's life, his conception, they're detailed for us in chapter 1. We didn't cover all of that last week. And then in chapter 3, verse 2, we pick up with John the Baptist as an adult. Now, leading up to this point, Jesus and John's lives were intertwined. They led parallel lives. They were intertwined with each other, how they were born, but also the roles in which they would play in God's plan of redemption. Their births were both miraculous. They were accompanied by these appearances of angels... John's mother, Elizabeth, was enabled in her old age to conceive a son. And then obviously Jesus was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary just a few months after John was conceived. 
Then during Mary's pregnancy, she went to stay with her relative Elizabeth. And these two unlikely mothers, you've got a teenage virgin who is pregnant, and you have a, a woman well past the years of bearing children. They, they greet one another, and they share this spirit-filled greeting. John the Baptist leaps in Elizabeth's womb, and then Mary immediately begins to sing her Magnificat of praise for the Messiah that she was carrying. John's birth and Jesus' birth, they were moments of great anticipation and praise. With their arrival, God's people received them, recognizing these are special men, and in fact, the Son of God, and the redemption that God has been promising for these hundreds of years is now coming to fruition. After these births, both of these men, they lived in obscurity for a number of years, and then they burst on the scene for relatively short but tumultuous lives of ministry, and ultimately both of them are put to death by the hands of wicked men. Now, although they're living parallel lives, their roles in God's plan were quite different. Jesus, obviously, is the Son of God, the Messiah. And John's role was unique in that he was called by God to prepare the way for this Messiah. So he played a role of preparation for the arrival of the king. In our passage, after years of isolation in the wilderness, the time has finally come for John to fulfill his calling. Look with me at verse 2. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And this call was one that the prophet Isaiah had written about. Verse 4. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. John's role is described as someone who is making a pathway. He's preparing a way for a king, a road. He's making a road that the king will then travel. And it calls to mind this imagery of cutting through a virgin forest and making a road. So you have to clear out all the trees and you have to blast out any rock that's in the way. And then you've got to build bridges over valleys and over rivers all the time leveling this road that will then be traveled. John is making a pathway, a spiritual road into the hearts of God's people that Jesus is going to follow behind him and make this pathway into the hearts of those he will save. So what did this spiritual road making what did it look like verse 3 and he went into all the region around the jordan proclaiming the bab a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins so like an earth mover clearing trees and boulders john was beginning to spiritually break up the hard hearts of the people of god and he does so through this call to purification and repentance in order to do so john proclaimed a baptism of repentance now, what is this baptism of repentance exactly? So obviously it's a precursor in some ways, but it's not the exact same baptism that Jesus is eventually going to give to us, the church. In fact, it's more tied to the Old Testament ceremonial law where things would be washed. People would be cleansed through this washing of water and things would be washed in this washing or would be cleansed through this washing of water, all in preparation for them to be made clean and pure in order to enter into the presence of God. This was particularly the case for all those who would go into the temple. They had to be purified and washed in order to become holy and into the presence of God. So John's baptism of repentance, it was an outward sign that signified this purification, this setting apart of God's people in preparation for the arrival of Jesus. 
If the people of God in the Old Testament had to ceremonially prepare themselves to walk into the temple, how much more did the people of God in the New Testament need to prepare themselves for the arrival of God in the flesh in order to greet their king, their Messiah? It was an outward sign signifying this preparation of God's people. Think of it the way you might think of preparing a meal for a special guest. When a guest is coming over, you set the table. Hopefully you don't set out dirty dishes. In fact, you probably set out clean ones. And if it's a really special guest, it might be the best dishes that you have. You then clean up the house. You then clean up yourself, all in preparation to welcome this guest into your home. This is akin to the baptism that John called the people in preparation to do for Jesus' arrival. John was setting the table. He was preparing himself. He was preparing his people because Jesus was about to arrive and they were about to sit down and feast with their king. But this baptism was also tied to repentance. It's not just a physical washing. If you think of sin as an appetite to stay with this meal imagery... John was calling them to repent or to deny their appetites. Rather than filling up on the idolatry and the sin and the pleasures of this world, they were denying themselves, repenting and turning from the sins of this world in order that they might whet their appetite for the meal that Christ was to be spiritually in their lives. There are many parallels to our celebration of the Lord's Supper each week. Each week God calls us into his presence... We then encounter God in his holiness and we recognize we're sinful. That we need to confess our sins and we need to receive his assurance of pardon. So in that moment we are purifying ourselves by confessing our sins. We then hear God's word preached which calls us to repent. So we've prepared our hearts. We're now turning from our sin and turning towards God. And doing so, having done so, we're then welcomed into communion with Christ. We sit down to a meal having been prepared to sit down in God's presence. John's role was to prepare the way for this type of communion with God. And his call remains. It's a call to daily repentance and preparation for each of us, not just corporately each week, but individually to have communion with God. So the question is, what does your daily life of confession and repentance and communion look like? Yes, we confess our sins each week, we respond, we sit down to this meal, but this isn't only limited to what we do each and every Sunday. This is a way of life that we can embrace each and every day. It's not limited to this this day. It is a life of self-examination and confession and forgiveness, all in the context of God's love and communion with us. For instance, you may take time at the beginning of your day, each day to spend time with God, to spend time in his word, to speak to him in prayer, to ask him for help with the upcoming day. And you may do so again at the end of the day where you review your day. Where has God been good to you? Where have you sinned and need to confess? And how can you be welcomed back into communion with God and then drift off to sleep in the presence of God? For some, this type of self-examination, it might be a scary thought. I'm not sure I want God peering into my soul. But remember, it is God's kindness that leads us to repentance. We enter into the presence of a loving God, a forgiving God, a merciful God. And as we confess and we seek restoration, God freely gives that to us. And we can cleanse our consciences welcomed into the context of God's love for us. So that's John's role, a role of preparation of repentance. That's point number one. Let's look at point number two, John's rebuke. John's rebuke. Look with me. Chapter 3, 7 through 9. He 
said therefore to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warn you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children of Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. John sounds like a real peach, doesn't he? Like a nice guy. So imagine, people are probably talking about this guy. There's this great preacher. He's out in the wilderness. you got to go see him. He's baptizing people. It's this big moment. And you're excited because you think, man, we're going to go hear this wonderful speaker. And then you show up, and it's this wild hair, unkept guy. And he has camel's hair on and a leather belt, and he's been surviving on locusts and honey. And then he greets you, not with this wonderful, warm message, but you brood of vipers who warned you to turn from the wrath to come. It's probably pretty surprising for those who came in. This was not a seeker-sensitive message. If you're looking for some self-esteem boost here, you're not going to get it from John. That's not what he does. So why does John preach this way to the crowds? Why does he approach it this way? I think it's helpful to think about the coming of Christ like the coming of a sunrise. You see, Israel's been in darkness for quite some time. It's been 400 plus years since a prophet of God has spoken to the people. And in this interim period, in this silence from God, the people in many ways have become hardened. They've been living in darkness and they've become arrogant and proud. They've been awaiting this Messiah, but he had not come. And so John is saying, look, the light is coming. And when the light comes, you need to be prepared. And when God finally sent John, he was sent to this hardened people. And John, John's, warning was, John's role was to warn them of this light to come. But the leaders who were supposed to be preparing as well, they didn't believe this. They were self-righteous. They were arrogant. They were proud. They were hard in their hearts. They'd been walking in darkness so long, it was hard for them to believe that the Messiah was finally coming. In fact, they were quite confident in their, in their sin... We're children of Abraham. God loves us. God's good with us. And so John begins to confront the religious people of his day. People who were confident in their own goodness. People who gathered in the presence of God to worship, but whose hearts and lives were far from God. You see, one of the unexpected things about Jesus is just how seriously Jesus takes our sin. All of us love gentle Jesus, gracious Jesus, loving Jesus. But we mustn't allow all of Jesus' gentleness and his grace and his love to create in our minds some some sense of a domesticated Jesus. You see, in addition to being loving and gentle and gracious, Jesus is also holy, he's pure, he's just, and he is settled in his opposition to our sin. He takes our sin so seriously, in fact, that he came in order to die to pay the penalty for our sin to satisfy the wrath of God against our sin. And what John knows and what John is warning the people to prepare for is that Jesus takes sin seriously. Jesus isn't after our lip service. He's not impressed with our many words. He's not after an appearance of our holiness. He's after a genuine holiness, a holiness of heart and mind and action. John is calling the people to repent because he knows when the sunrise of Christ comes, when the light of the world shines forth, each and every person needs to be ready. They need to be prepared because when the light of the world comes, it will shine a light on our darkness. All of our sin will be laid bare and we need to be prepared to humble ourselves, to repent of our sins and come to our king to worship and obey him. 
So what's the response of the crowds to this provocative preaching of John? Look with me at verses 10 through 14. And the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized, and he said to him, and they said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you are authorized to do. In other words, quit stealing. Soldiers are asked him, and what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusations, and be content with your wages. So the people want to repent. So John begins to vamp on just a couple of the Ten Commandments. Do not steal. Do not covet. Rather, he wants them to embrace contentment and to embrace generosity. In other words, he calls them to a life of holiness. He just uses a couple of examples. He calls them to a life that bears fruit, as he says in verse 8, in keeping with repentance. If you want to repent, it means your life is going to need to change. It's not enough to attend worship and say that you believe. Genuine repentance, it leads to a changed life. A life that's lived out in the daily ins and outs of our lives. A life of obedience and holiness. In other words, we aren't called to talk the talk of religious observance. We are called to walk a walk of devotion and obedience. Luke continues, look with me at verses 15 to 17. So as the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So the people hearing a prophet for the first time in 400 plus years, they begin to speculate, is this the Christ? Is John the Christ? We haven't heard someone speaking with this authority for several centuries now. Is he the promised king that's going to deliver us, his people? But John immediately makes clear, that's not my role. My role isn't to be this Savior. My role is to prepare a way for this Savior. And it's this Savior who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. It's Jesus who will baptize his people with the Holy Spirit, renewing their hearts, giving them new hearts, saving them, leading them to be born again. He will also baptize with fire. And fire is a picture of the purification. Like fire applied to metal brings all of the impurities to the surface. Jesus, when he arrives, will baptize his people with the Holy Spirit and with fire. The fire of his holiness purifying his people. And again, we come to see that Jesus is no wallflower. Jesus isn't a philosophy. He's not a wise teacher. He's not some sage who's helping us live our best lives to make us happy. Jesus is God. And to be in his presence is to come into the presence of a consuming fire of holiness that will purify us by the power of his spirit. John then uses this imagery of winnowing wheat to describe the nature of Jesus' ministry. So if you know what winnowing is, so you've got wheat and you've got chaff. You've got chaff, which is the stalk and the leaves around it, and wheat is the fruit of Grain is the fruit of this wheat. And so what they would do is harvest the wheat and they would allow the wheat to dry out. And they would take a winnowing fork, which is akin to a pitchfork. And they would begin to throw the wheat up into the air. And the chaff would be blown away and all the grain would fall to the bottom. They'd gather up the fruit and then they would gather up all the chaff and take the chaff to be burned with fire. And when we encounter Jesus, one thing we aren't allowed to do is to be 
neutral. Jesus winnows us. We are either wheat or we are chaff. And to encounter Jesus is to be winnowed. To encounter Jesus is to be forced to a point of decision. Are we going to humble ourselves, acknowledge our sin, repent and come to him for the free salvation that he offers? Or are we going to reject him and find ourselves gathered up among the chaff and consumed by fire? Friends, Jesus is still winnowing us. He's still winnowing his church. Keep in mind who John's talking to. Who's he talking to? He's talking to the religious people. He's talking to the churchgoers of his day. And he's, he's confronting the presumption of those who go to church. That's who John's talking to. These still, words still have application to us. They are a warning against our presumption. Against living double lives. Outwardly professing and looking one way while inwardly being far from God. You see, it's not what we say. It's who we love, who we worship, and how we live. We are called to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. It's not enough to say I've been in church my whole life. It's not enough to say I regularly attend grace. I'm even a member of grace. To paraphrase John, God can raise up members of grace from these stones. That's what he's saying. That's how confrontational he is. And what he's calling to is, us to is that we to examine ourselves so that we do not fool ourselves. Saying, if you don't believe, if you have not repented, the axe of judgment is laid to the root. And Jesus will one day come and he will chop down all those who have not believed in him and they will be cast into the fire. The winnowing fork is in his hand. You see, friends, Jesus isn't someone to be trifled with. He is the son of God. God in the flesh. And he's present now. Jesus is present now in this room by his spirit. Isn't just us here. God is here with us in our midst. He's still baptizing humanity with the spirit and with fire. And he calls forth a response from us. He doesn't want our lip service. He wants our hearts. He wants our worship. He wants our devotion. He's calling forth from us our worship. He doesn't want perfect hearts. Don't freak out. What he wants are humble hearts. Hearts that will acknowledge, yes, we have sinned and we need a Savior. Hearts that acknowledge we cannot save ourselves and the only one who can is Jesus who came to live, die, and rise for us. Hearts that trust not in ourselves, not in our own righteousness, but in the righteousness of Christ and his sacrifice of himself on our behalf. And Jesus, and just like the people of Jesus' day awaited Jesus' arrival, we've been awaiting for 2,000 years his return. It's easy in the interim to enter the same sort of dark ages of the, as the people of Israel. We live in a dark world. To begin to think that God has forgotten or that God does no, long, no longer sees what is going on. But one day, friends, be assured that Christ will either, you will either die and be with him or Christ will return. And in that moment, Christ, the light of the world, will shine a light on our hearts and our sins will be revealed. In that moment, all of the facades, all of the double life, all of the hypocrisy, it will be laid bare. And our only hope in that moment will not be our righteousness, but the sacrificial life and righteousness of Christ. Each of us must take stock of our lives and ask, are we living lives that are bearing fruit in keeping with repentance? If, jo if not, John's warning is just as relevant for us today as it was for his audience. 
Now, as hard as this message is for us to hear, and trust me, as I was preparing it, it was a hard one for my own soul to hear. It is good news. Look with me at 318. John has just been laying it on them. And then it says, with so many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. Friends, hard news isn't always bad news. John cared more about the souls of his listeners than he did about whether they liked him. And friends, they didn't like him. He was getting ready to be arrested and one day his head was going to be lifted off of his shoulders. It was bad news and it was not welcome news. But it was good news in that it was the news of salvation that the people needed. Bad news is not always antithetical to good news. Sometimes we need to know that we're sick so that we turn to the one who can heal us. Having prepared the way by calling God's people to prepare themselves for Christ's arrival, John now steps aside. Briefly, point number three, Jesus' arrival on the scene. Look with me at 19 through 22. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him, by John, for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all that he locked up John in prison. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. So as quickly as John has burst on the scene, he then exits. Like a shooting star that burned brightly, he quickly faded away when the greater light arrived. John's role was important, but it was a brief one. Luke then transitions to Jesus, whose ministry was inaugurated with his baptism. The Son of God had arrived. The Son of God taken on flesh, and his ministry was about to begin. So as we close out this message on John the Baptist, I want us to consider John's humility and how we might embrace this heart of humility. John was a significant man. Jesus is singing his praises. His whole life had been greeted with Worship at what he was going to do. And yet, John knew that one more significant than him was the Son of God. He understood his role and he embraced it. He was simply a herald. He was simply someone proclaiming and pointing to the one who could save both him and us. May we take on this same posture of humility as we encounter Jesus. A humility that allows us to be confronted by the Son of God. Not as we want him to be. Not as we imagine him to be, but as he has revealed himself to be. May we humble ourselves and allow Jesus to turn our ideas of him inside out and upside down. To turn our lives inside out and upside down. Friends, are you prepared for this kind of encounter with an unexpected Jesus? That Jesus might reveal himself in a way you've either forgotten or you've never encountered before. Friends, I want to encounter Jesus in that way in this series. And I want us to have a posture of humility that as we encounter him, our lives are transformed in worship as we encounter Jesus afresh. May God grant us this humility, the humility of John, and may it lead us to worship our Savior. Let me pray for us. Father, I pray that even as we hear hard news I'm just preaching John's message after him in a way. It's hard to proclaim bad news. But Father, for my soul and for the soul of everyone listening, may we know that this hard news, this bad news, this call of repentance, this acknowledgement of sin, 
Father, may we see it as good news because it's repentance that allows us to turn around and run to our Savior, Jesus Christ, who saves us, loves us, forgives us, and welcomes us. Father, even now as we sing and then prepare to come to your table, I pray that that may be the motion of this entire congregation, that we've heard the bad news, now we're going to come to a table set by your Son for your people, and because of what he's done, welcome us, your repentant people, into your presence, we ask in Christ's name. Amen.